Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after spending a few years going through world history one movie at a time, we are now in the midst of a very heated tournament. And this is uh this is matchup two in round two, so we're in the sweet sixteen now. Cleopatra uh defeated the Trung sisters last week. So this week we are moving on to uh the first sweet sixteen matchup in the medieval on your ass bracket with Isabella the She Wolf of France and Empress Matilda. Or Maud, as she is sometimes called. Or Maud also. <laughs> And just as a side note, before we get started, uh, I am also once again drinking out of my "You Tell Him I'm Coming" and "Hell's Coming with Me" Tombstone Wyatt Earp mug. Yeah, so, rest in rest in peace, rest in peace, Wyatt Earp. R.I.P. in yeah. peace. <laughs> so yes, we're going to basically dedicate this whole episode to just looking at these two very awesome women from world history and European history here. Hell yeah. It's kind of funny when you go through, and we so we split up the research where, you know, Logan's going to do the rundown of Isabella, and I'm going to do the rundown of Matilda, and I honestly don't know which way I'm going to vote, but it's hard when you're the one doing the research to not feel like you're the advocate, and not to be yeah. a little biased. Although, in last week's case, and in this case... I'm like I'm kind of bummed that all these women are getting are are having to match up with each other so early. <sighs> no, it, and it wasn't. Which I, there's yeah. not. There's not really another way to. It just it just kind of happened that way. Yeah. Yeah, because of the way that we set up the bracket, we didn't want to do too much, you know, debate and deliberation beforehand to try and engineer the bracket to you know kick certain people out. Right. Early. We wanted it to kind of be a an actual. Just happen how it happens. Yeah. An a- right, an actual, you know, tournament style thing, but... The flip side is it guarantees, you know, these women making it to the Elite Eight. Yeah. And then we'll kind of see, I guess, if they can then beat uh, their male challengers in the next round. Yeah. It's just like, they, man, they're just so... They're just so good. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I wish they could go further. Right. Although also, as we said, too, like, everybody in the Sweet 16... Is now, I mean, not that every, I mean, everyone we nominated for the tournament was was a strong player and, a, and an interesting person in history. But definitely in the Sweet Sixteen, right. as we go through these full bios on everybody, you can make the case for any one of them being the person who should win the entire tournament. I I really think Absolutely. it's a it's an impressive an impressive lineup. So as we said, we're going to start. We're going to have the low seed go first, which in this case, since these were both upsets as far as seeding goes. Uh, Empress Matilda upset Joan of Arc. And uh, Isabella France on the on the tiebreaker because we actually split. She she upset uh, Vlad the Impaler, aka Dracula, just because uh, Logan invested more points into into seeing that that happened. I was gonna say yeah. So I feel like I kind of have a little more personally invested in this matchup too because oh. <laughs> uh, not only did I have to you know it was a tiebreaker and we actually spent points I, or I I spent the points to get her to this round. Which was also the reason that I'm <laughs> indirectly. It's the reason that I'm drinking out of this mug right now because I didn't then have enough points to defend my boy Wyatt Earp. 
against uh, QE1. So, uh, so you know, I got I got a decent amount of skin in this matchup because it's now I got to dedicate myself. In theory, that should all be reset. That's got to be a mental reset, though. Like that's it's, I know it, it, Isabel and Francis carrying the torch for Wyatt Earp. It's just some kind, some <laughs> kind of weird meta thing in, within the bracket. <laughs> Also, all while hanging over both of us is how we're going to deal with the Gandhi versus T.E. Lawrence matchup at the end of this round. (laughs) And it's like, are we making deals ahead of time on, like, or we're both holding back so we could save points for there? Or is that just a head game and I'm actually on board with T.E. Lawrence? (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, and honestly, like, maybe I should have been thinking that way when we were doing, when we were going Isabella versus Violet Impaler. I don't know why I didn't look ahead. Well, but if you were doing it the right way at the time, because yeah. the matchup is the matchup. Yeah. And so, again, let's, uh, let's get to today's matchup, <laughs> which is... Enough in the dwelling in the past. Yeah. Empress Matilda, uh, daughter of Henry I of England, so the granddaughter of William the Conqueror, versus Isabel, she-wolf of France, who was married to Edward II of England, the son of Longshanks, who we met in Braveheart. Empress Matilda, of course, we saw in Beckett as the mother of Henry II. And I forgot to look up the exact uh, thing, but I'm 99% positive Isabella of France is a direct ancestor of Empress Matilda. Or, or, yeah, sorry, descendant. 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 Yeah, so yeah, in this, in this matchup today, Matilda is Isabella's five times great-grandmother. Uh, so yes, this is, a, this is a family rivalry. This is a family mm-hmm. feud here today on History of Phil. <laughs> so I guess what's kind of funny, too, is so I, I wanted to start by talking about Matilda's ancestry. <laughs> but guess what? Isabella has all of that, too, because she, she's just grandma. <laughs> right. Of course, yeah, in some ways you can get to the idea that, you know, Matilda is the grandmother of all of Europe with that kind of thing in mind. Pretty much. Yeah, because she basically she's kind of a, like you said, she's a, you think of like an hourglass. There's like a funnel to her right. and out from there. Right. And that, and that encompasses like British royalty, but also French royalty. Right. And I, and I do think it's significant, and I'm just kind of going into my thing here now, but obviously keep asking questions throughout. She is kind of a good person to choose at, if you're going to talk about that hourglass kind of figure. She is kind of, I feel like, that bridge point between kind of maybe the, the past and the, and the future as far as all the great people before and all the great people af- after. It's like hard to not go through Matilda to get to right. this. So uh, Matilda was born... Uh, and again, all the records back here are not super exact. So she was born around February 7th of 1102. Uh, we're not sure exactly where. Again, records aren't super good. But it, it does seem it was probably in one of the royal estates to the west of London. Her father was King Henry I of England, a son of William the Conqueror. Uh, her mother was a Scottish princess, also named Matilda. Obviously, all the names get repeated during these times, which makes things very confusing. Mm-hmm. I mean... <laughs> Spoiler alert, there's like the three Henrys, and Matilda is famously the daughter of Henry, the mom of Henry, and the wife of Henry, because of three different Henrys. Oh, yeah. Oh, and same thing when we get to Isabella. Yeah, right, right. You have her son, Edward, whose dad is Edward, whose (laughs) granddad is also Edward, whose son is also Edward. Right. Did she have a brother, Edward, too, probably? (laughs) I don't know. Okay. (laughs) No, she did it because she's she's French, so they were all Phillips and Louise and Charles. Okay, right, 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 right. Yeah, (laughs) fair. Okay, so yeah, I did want to, again, we don't need to spend too much time on it, but I did want to just kind of highlight Matilda's lineage, because even though it happens before her birth, it is an important part of what makes her so interesting. 
and the fact that she is kind of this funnel point <laughs> genetically for kind of all of Europe. So kind of looking at, so yeah, we kind of mentioned her, her father and her mother, but then specifically, so on her mother's side, one side, you know, basically her mother's mother is all the old kings of England. So that's like, you know, Alfred the Great and Ethelred the Unready. And, yeah. And all, yeah, so that's, so she's from, she basically goes back to the first king of England ever on her mother's mother's side. Right. For anyone who uh, who took our advice and listened to Rex Factor, think like the first dozen or so episodes oh, of right. Rex Factor. All all those guys, right? Exactly. So I think well, they started with Alfred the Great. So right, pretty much from him on. Yeah, that's her. Well, dad. and then they go in, and then they go into Scotland, and <laughs> that's all her dad, right. and that's all her mom, Matilda's mom's dad's side, because that's the a long line of Scottish kings. So basically. The line of Scottish kings married into the line of English kings, and all that was Matilda's mother. And then Matilda's right. father, Henry I, we already mentioned, is a son of William the Conqueror. Well, then on right. his mother's side, you get into all the French stuff with Rollo and Hugh Capet and Charlemagne. Of course, actually, that's on his both sides. So Henry I, both sides of his family are actually from Charlemagne and and uh, Rollo and them just because of cousins and stuff, but nothing too yeah. close. But like you know, fourth cousins and stuff getting getting married. So not all the way back actually to the first king of France actually, who's considered Clovis. It's possible Clovis is an ancestor of Charlemagne, but a lot of historians don't believe that link can be proven. And mm-hmm. so we can get to Charlemagne on that side, but not necessarily farther back than that. But yes, so all these prominent people over all the history of Northern Europe from you know up to this time, and you have Matilda, the oldest legitimate child of King Henry I. And just because it does kind of play into some other things, it is worth noting how her father became king, even though she was born after her father was crowned Henry I. But he was actually the fourth son of William the Conqueror. So... Not necessarily someone who you would have expected to have been to have become king, but it's just weird how it kind of played out. So William the Conqueror, four sons, the second of whom dies before William the Conqueror. So he's already kind of out of the picture. So you're down to three sons. Henry's still the youngest remaining. And because England was kind of this new territory that William had conquered, Normandy was still home. So William right. the Conqueror, when he died, it was that, oh... Well, and this was kind of tradition at the time. The oldest son gets the family ancestral home. So the oldest son got Normandy. And the next son, which was now already the third son, because the second son had died, got to be king of England. So you have this weird dynamic where the oldest brother is just the Duke of Normandy. And the younger brother gets the lands his father gained during his lifetime. Because he, William the Conqueror, wasn't really like thinking of setting up his whole kingdom as one big thing right he was basically just conquering territory and right, yeah, but, it, but not necessarily uniting it all under one single monarch and one single government if he's going to make his his oldest son the duke of normandy and his oh right right his Again, you, you really just didn't think of things like in that way there as far as like building an english empire right so you, what you have then is a prince henry who's basically just you know pound around his brother, who's King William II, while their older brother is off in charge of Normandy. And there's a famous hunting accident mm-hmm. in which uh, William II or William Rufus is hit with an arrow 
and then everyone just kind of leaves his body in the forest and Henry runs off to be crowned king of England before his older brother Robert can do anything about it and try to make a claim coming over from Normandy and it's all kind of fishy well, obviously it's another uh straight up George R R Martin basically ripped that off with Robert Baratheon getting oh, killed absolutely. in a hunting accident yep. Uh, you know, a suspicious hunting accident as well. Right. You're right. I, I, yeah, that's kind of from this this incident here. Now, there really is nothing that, even contemporary sources, it really does seem to be an accident. Historians do kind of agree that but, it well, was legit an accident. There's other... Even though they just kind of left him behind in the, in the, in the yeah, woods. Yeah, well, and, and there's other, like, instances of, you know, high-profile, like, documented nobility getting killed in hunting accidents like it wasn't like this one time this one noble like really suspiciously got killed like it it happened a lot well so much so that the second son of william the conqueror i mentioned who died before william the conqueror was that also a hunting accident hell yeah yep (laughs) (laughs) uh not an arrow though this one's almost even worse he uh he was just riding on his horse while they're hunting Hits a branch while on his horse so hard that he died. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what a way to go out. <laughs> and a harder one to say was uh, intentional, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So it does seem like, so Henry's haste to get back was more just kind of like, I have to secure the treasury mm. so that I control the purse string so that I can control the crown before my older brother can mobilize and try to make his own claim gotcha. to be English king since yeah. he's older than me. So anyway, but Henry was able to claim the throne and then marries the Scottish princess, which again, strategic, helps secure up the island of Great Britain with that alliance. And he can basically say, nope, I am king. So that's kind of when you'll see some of the marriage alliance he makes with Matilda. It's kind of with securing that throne. Again, he's he doesn't have a strong, strong claim because his older brother could always come in and try to say, I should be king of England. Okay, so all that is to lead up to Matilda being born into this world with her her father having just been king for a few years and maybe always a little nervous about securing his position as English monarch because again it's all very new his his literally his father had just conquered the throne a generation before we don't know a lot about her early years specifically but it is likely she was well educated and it's also just kind of interesting to look at her mother's entourage as I'm calling it that basically Matilda would have been growing up in this household that included just these future super important people because you got her mom's brother hanging out who of course will later become king david of scotland and her bastard siblings because even though she's the first legitimate child of henry the first he had like 20 some bastard kids who he all recognized and and one that will be in very important in matilda's story is her older brother Robert of Gloucester, uh, who is basically an earl, is actually, I forget exactly, like 8, 12 years older than her. So basically the dude who would have been king if he had been legitimate after Henry I died, but he wasn't. So he just ends up being like uh, Matilda's main supporter throughout all of her future uh, struggles. And then you also have her cousin, Stephen, who's a grandson of William the Conqueror by one of the daughters. We haven't even talked about the daughters of William the Conqueror. So she's got all these people that are just hanging out as she's growing up in her mother's kind of court here. Is that the same the same Stephen that causes problems later? It is exactly the same. Yep, yep. So they all kind of grew up together, which is kind of this neat little dynamic, I thought. And then even like too, when her, you know, when her dad's off doing king things in France, you know, taking care of 
Well, I guess not exactly Normandy because his brother would have been in charge of Normandy. But he, they're still kind of out doing king things. You're always kind of putting out rebellions, always kind of securing resources and lords. And uh, But she was even like left in charge at one point by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, which is only significant because he later becomes Saint Anselm. So what I kind of put in bold here was, so you have this English princess with that lineage we talked about who is raised, surrounded by future kings and queens and bastards and saints. And then she herself is about to become right. an empress. So, yeah, marriages at this time were kind of all about making those alliances that we discussed. So about the time Matilda was seven, the Holy Roman Emperor comes knocking and says, Hey, Henry, uh, I should totally marry your seven-year-old daughter because that will make a good alliance for both of us. And Henry is like, heck, yes, it would. Because, again, it's really all about the contract. Right. It's not about... Right, you don't, the the idea is just to become engaged. So obviously, they waited until she was twelve to get married. Right. They're not I was monsters. Just say, we, there's it's a similar <laughs> similar thing when we get to Isabella too. So it's this was a pretty pretty common. Oh right, right, right. It's a it's a practice at the time, and it's definitely cringy. But it's I don't know. I don't think it's I don't know, I don't want to dig myself into the hole here and say it's not bad. It was bad, but. It's more about the contract. We also forget that, like, love marriage right. wasn't a thing until, like, the 19th yeah. century. <laughs> like, it was always kind of just this, you know, agreement and arrangement that was a mutually beneficial one. So, yeah, uh, basically, it gives Henry a lot of clout if he's marrying into the line of Holy Roman Emperors that do go back to Charlemagne. And then also he's able to help throw some money, you know, dowry-wise toward the Holy Roman Emperor that's going to help him with, like, he needs to go down to Rome to get officially coordinated. because. We don't have time to get into the whole Holy Roman Empire thing, but basically you kind of get nominated and then officially ordained and, you know, coordinated by the Pope. And so he needs cash for that. So basically it's a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement. So they get the deal all finalized because, again, it really is just a business (laughs) transaction uh, in in these days. And Matilda is shipped off to uh, Germany. Again, that's a very soft Germany. It's the Holy Roman Empire that's kind of Germany-ish and... I don't think we'll ever get to a Holy Roman Empire uh, uh, episode any anytime soon, but complicated. Yeah. But yeah, so she's educated in all things German, you know, just kind of, you know, the language and the customs and the politics and just basically starts to learn the ins and outs of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. A few years after that, I get, yeah, they're married when she's 12. And then a few years after that, her husband gets excommunicated by the Pope because he had another archbishop arrested, and it gets into all the complicated things. There's basically big fights at the time. I think they even call it like the investiture crisis or whatever controversy over who actually gets to appoint bishops. Should it be the Holy Roman Empire should it, or emperor, should, or should it be the pope? And Anyway, there's always fights over this, and her husband ends up getting excommunicated. And just because I don't want people to think that Matilda's all in the background because it's very obvious to see that this girl coming over from England and all this arranged marriage stuff that she would be in the background but keep in mind she's on this list because she's a badass and so she's like involved kind of right from the beginning so she goes with her husband to Rome when they go to you know deal with the Pope because she's already kind of uh actually what I wrote down here is uh so even in her mid-teens she was quote playing a full part in the imperial government, sponsoring royal grants, dealing with petitioners, and taking part in ceremonial occasions. Now, that doesn't sound like that big a deal. It's not that much responsibility. But she's 15 and from England, doing all this stuff in the Holy Roman Empire. So she goes with her husband to Rome to sort things out with the Pope. 
but you know, sort things out in the aggressive negotiation style. Like they bring an army to Rome and the Pope flees <laughs> because they wanted to sort this whole excommunication thing out. So while they were there, he had already been, I think, I guess maybe crowned at this time. So they have a papal envoy who's still in Rome do a little like crowning ceremony for them. And this is where she starts calling herself Empress Matilda. But it's, <laughs> again, she's just kind of ambitious and stubborn and people basically debated like well that doesn't count the pope didn't do it you just had this other guy do it and she's like yeah that's empress matilda to you (laughs) and like the the whole rest of her life like she kind of technically had no right she was never officially crowned empress and then obviously her husband here is gonna die here soon and she goes back to england and so she's not married to the emperor anymore and she's like yeah no call me empress and the whole rest of her life she just insisted that everyone call her empress matilda and we're doing it 900 years later cool. just because she wanted us to. <laughs> right. <laughs> she just uh, just kind of insisted. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you're the boss. You're the boss. So her husband goes back to Germany. And again, to kind of speak to the level of her competence, she's now 16. And he leaves her in charge of Italy while he goes back to Germany to deal with, you know, again, Holy Roman Emperor things. Just, you know, all the various things we already talked about. So yeah, she's basically in charge of Italy from just an administration standpoint at 16 years old, having been born in England and still learning all these languages. And just, again, she's just insanely competent. Uh, After a year or so of that, she does go back with her husband and they need to start trying to produce an heir, which is obviously the other important part of these marriages. You need to have heirs. But after a few years, they don't have any kids. And the doctors even kind of say that we think you're both fertile. We don't really see why you're not having kids. And because this is the 12th century, it's kind of seen as a punishment from God, from all the, you know, butting heads with the Pope and things like that. So you start to literally think that, oh, God doesn't want us to have kids because we were butting heads with the church and all those kinds of things. And like, how do they even determine that? How are they even making the determination? Yeah, we think you're both fertile. Like they don't even have microscopes. Like what the hell are they even talking about? No, that's a good question. I I think you would, (laughs) is is it as simple as, well, one, I didn't look to see if he had bastard children. Uh, that's yeah. a, that'd be one possibility. But saving that, I think if they just kind of just say, well, you seem to be healthy as any other right. man. And then and if she's having a regular period, they just kind of say like, well, it looks yeah. like you're fertile. Well, yeah, true. I, I guess the <laughs> science and, and human physiology yeah. understanding yeah. back then, not quite. Right. Or, or, you know, they prayed and the priest said you were fertile. I don't yeah, know. You, <laughs> honestly. That's probably exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, and again, she has kids later, so they were right on her right. end. But her husband dies of cancer. Uh, and, and again, to your question, too, I even had the thought, like, well, how do they know it was cancer? This was 1125. ass tumor? I think it's just like, just like... <laughs> right. Didn't they even call it, like, the wasting disease and stuff? So, like, you just, when you just kind of, like, got generally sick and just kind of slowly died miserably, ah, twas right. the cancer. And so I think it's more like our modern disease is more named after this ancient mm-hmm. ailment that really was kind of mm-hmm. enigmatic. And we've, yeah, so they've been calling it cancer forever. Anyway, so Matilda, yes, her husband dies of cancer. They didn't have any kids. She is now a widow at 23 years old. And everything's kind of up in the air at this point. So if she had had a son, she would have been able to serve maybe as regent for him in the Holy Roman Empire. Again, even though it's more of an elected position, but we're not going to get into all that right now. Others suggested, you know, hey, your normal thing to do would just be maybe, you know, become a nun. Uh, But 
basically, and she even had like some of the royal seals still. Again, so she she was a capable administrator. So there's there's a case to be made. She could just kind of hang out and still maybe not be in charge per se, but kind of still help administer things until they elect a new Holy Roman Emperor. But she's kind of talked into just hanging it up, turning over the keys, so to speak, and heading back to England with, and this is something I had never heard of before, the mummified hand of St. James the Apostle. It was like while she was empress in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, this uh, ancient artifact was given into her custody. Like a souvenir? Like, hey, thanks for being our empress. Here's this relic (laughs) as a souvenir. Have fun in England. Bye. Kind of probably. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if they know exactly when it, when or who it was given to her by, but I think it was more just like, hey, you're an important woman, so the church or whoever was in custody of it previously is giving this great artifact to you in recognition of you being awesome, I guess. So several things just on this little artifact. One, you can still go see it today. It is this creepy old mummified looking hand. If you look up the hand of St. James the Apostle, it's still around today, and you can go visit it, and it's had this chain of custody where it kind of disappears and reappears, and they, anyway, blah, 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 dates back centuries. It's really cool that she had it, but it's not real. <laughs> like, it's not the actual mummified hand of the actual St. James the Apostle based on scientific research done in the 20th century. Uh, is it like an age thing, or like how do they know? No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically, it doesn't carbon date to the right, right time, and so it basically seems to be a forgery from maybe just a few hundred years before Matilda's time. But I'm almost going to say, if you're talking about interesting lives lived and all that kind of stuff, everyone at the time believed it was literally the mummified hand of St. James the Apostle. So from her point of view and everyone in the world at that time, it was the real deal. I don't know. I think think that's kind of neat. Also kind of creepy, but kind of neat. This this is kind of going off the Matilda track, but do they have the rest of of St. James somewhere? Like, could they just look and say... That dude has two hands. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. I don't think it'd be that easy. I think he, his tomb was probably. Again, I didn't research all this. I think his tomb okay. was probably gone at this point. There's various reasons to think that it it doesn't. Uh, it isn't the actual one. Even though, yes, we'll we'll, we'll talk about. We do. We definitely do have uh, remnants of things. Like, isn't isn't Saint Peter still with the Vatican and the catacombs? Even anyway, she thought she had that. It was cool. Okay, so she goes back to England. Right now, what what had also happened while she, she was over in. Germany, again, Germany is always in quotes until basically the late 1800s. So we mentioned her dad had all these bastard kids. He did have a legitimate son younger than Matilda. And basically they were his only two legitimate children. But five years before her husband died and she returned to England, her younger brother died in what is known as the White Ship Disaster. And it's something I'd heard of for a while, and there's even a novel I haven't read that kind of focuses on that event, and I never really researched until this what exactly it was. And it's really kind of sad and tragic, and with the whole distance plus tragedy equals comedy thing, kind of funny is a strong word, but... I don't know a ton about it, but the whole situation was super avoidable, right? Yes. (laughs) So basically, they're all over hanging out in Normandy, getting ready to just cross the channel and go back to England, which again, there's little, you can literally drive it now underneath the channel. It's such a short trip. People have swam it and stuff. Anyway, so they're loading up into the boats. The the king gets offered by some dude like, hey, I got this brand new boat. It's the white ship. You should totally ride with me, king. He's like, oh, no, that's cool. Um, I'm going to just take this other ship over here. But you guys all just take that ship and we'll chill back in England. So everyone loads up into the white ship and it basically 
it's seriously, it's like the 12th century version of a party bus. And they're all just drunk, like, woo, yeah. let's go back to England. And we're just all drunk. And going, like, fast as hell. Right. Well, they're like, oh, hey, let's try to beat the king ship back. And then they, like, immediately hit a rock. And the ship starts to sink. And they're all drunk. And it does sound like even uh, the king's son actually gets into, like, a lifeboat. Or, again, the 12th century version of a lifeboat. Another small boat that was kind of attached or whatever. And he's actually, like, okay and, like, making it back. And he's like, oh, shoot, one of my bastard half-sisters is, like, drowning. I'll go back and get her real quick. And then she starts climbing in the boat. And everyone else who's, like, drowning in the water starts climbing into the boat. Oh, no. And the lifeboat like, just goes down, too. And the heir apparent drowns along with almost all the 300 other people. Like, one or two people made it out alive. And there's even a story that the captain of the ship actually had probably made it. And then, like, saw, like, oh, shoot. Everyone's saying, like, the princess drowned, the princess drowned. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to drown, too, so I don't have to face right. Henry the First Because uh, drowning, probably preferable <laughs> to whatever fate awaited him had he survived and the heir apparent not survived. <laughs> yes, yes. So just an absolute tragedy. But then again, I hate to say funny, but it's kind of funny in the sense that this 12th century party boat just crashed like right after. Like it hit a rock in like the bay. Like it's almost like how could they not... Close enough, they could have darned your swum back to shore, but the channel's notoriously mm-hmm. kind of rough, though, too. Anyway, so now Henry only has one surviving legitimate child, his daughter Matilda, who's recently widowed. There's a five-year gap there. So he had been debating, you know, he, he remarried, and he's trying to have a kid with his new wife. That wasn't going well. He wasn't having any kids there. He had all these bastards. He even thought about, does he name Robert of Gloucester his bastard, his heir? Which is, again, you're not really supposed to do that. They like all these legitimate things. But William the Conqueror, before he was the Conqueror, was William mm-hmm. the Bastard. So it wasn't like there's, you know, not precedent with, you know, basically saying a bastard could be in charge. Um, he also thought about naming his nephew Stephen, the son of his sister, as as his heir. But with Matilda now being widowed, she's now free to maybe remake another alliance, another marriage alliance. And she's proved herself so capable over on mainland Europe that he's like, shoot, we're going to have a queen. She's my heir until I have a legitimate son. And he gets all the barons in England to basically sign up and be like, yeah, no, that seems fair. She's done a good job over there. That's what you want. If you don't have a son, we'll back Matilda as the first queen of of England. That That sounds great. So she's married again. Again, her father arranges it. It's to Geoffrey of Anjou who is basically the son of the Count of Anjou, which is just a territory south of Normandy. So again, the political calculation there is that it's hard for him to keep putting out all these fires in England and in Normandy when he can't be in two places at once. So if he could get a really strong alliance in the one, then he doesn't have to always worry about going over there himself. And all the nobles and everything might be a little more in line if he's got someone representing him over there at all times. Matilda isn't very happy about this because she's like 11 years older than Geoffrey of Anjou. And when they get married, he's just 15 and she's 26. Right. Kind of a, kind of a, an opposite of how it was before. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Cause her, yeah, the whole emperor was about 12 years older than her. Yeah. Kind of the reverse. And then even just honestly too, because again, love marriages right. weren't really a thing. So her biggest issue actually seems to have been, um, I'm an empress. He's the son of a count. I don't think so. <laughs> like, she was just too cool for him. That's so badass, though, that, like, for a woman in, right, the, in right. the 12th century to be like, um, 
I don't think so. You're below my station. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's still, and she's still playing the Empress card, which she will play yeah. through the rest of her life, right? Which, hell yeah, go her. Yeah, but that aside, they also just really didn't seem to get along. Like, they just, on a personal level, didn't like each other. <laughs> so, they get married, the alliance is made, but she basically just doesn't even spend time over there with him. She's hanging out in Normandy, which her father had taken from his brother uh, several years before. So as a few years go by, though, they've been married for a little bit, and she finally decides, yeah, okay, I guess I need to have some kids. I need to kind of unite with Joffrey. He's maybe less annoying than I thought. So she does kind of start actually living with her husband. They do have a son in 1133 who they name Henry, and then another son, uh, Jeffrey, the, the next year. The uh, second birth of, of their son, uh, Jeffrey, was actually enough of a taxing ordeal that they actually thought Matilda was going to die. And people were kind of making sure they were already declaring support for her young mm-hmm. baby son, Henry, that, you know, we'll support him, blah, 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 blah. Because they, they were worried she was going to die, but, but she does ultimately uh, recover. And then so over the next couple of years... You do have Henry I has said multiple times that Matilda is my heir, and he's made the barons swear their allegiance that that's who they're going to support. Now, at the same time, to kind of help shore up that plan, Matilda and her husband, Geoffrey, who they're now now kind of pals, they actually kind of grow to have a pretty good uh, alliance, and and he'll help her a lot in her future uh, ambitions. They basically say, well, hey, why don't you give us control of a lot of your property over here in Normandy? like while you're still alive and that will really help that transition of us being you know the next heirs to your deal and henry again he's also really arrogant and selfish and it's just like no dude that's my (laughs) stuff you can't have it (laughs) so there actually is a little bit of a rift and so the next time a rebellion pops up in normandy because again when i see kings are doing kings things that's all they're doing is putting out all these fires of rebellions of all these lords and it's all kinds of complicated so the next time one pops up Matilda and Geoffrey support the rebels against her father. And again, nothing big happens. All these are just kind of conflicts in name only, but there starts to be a little bit of a rift there. And before all that can be resolved, Henry I dies. While Matilda's over in Normandy, and her sons are just one and two years old, respectively. So this triggers a 18-year-long civil war known as the Anarchy. Because while Matilda, who all the barons have agreed to support as Queen of England is stuck over in Normandy. Her cousin Stephen, who we've mentioned multiple times, is a grandson of William the Conqueror. He swoops in and basically just has himself declared king. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of like the whole, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law or whatever. He's over there. He's got enough support. That and also in the 12th century, I'm sure that those barons were looking for literally any excuse to be like, oh, this this dude wants to be ruler? Ah, oh, yeah. You know what? Actually, I think his uh, his claim to the throne is probably better than Matilda's. Like, yeah, I know I know we swore allegiance to her earlier, but but there's a guy now, so Right, no, and that's and that's basically what happens. And then Stephen's brother is also high up in the church, and he basically convinces all the nobles that remember, because oaths actually meant something back then. <laughs> like yeah. if you swore an oath it was like you were worried literally you'd be on the wrong right. side of God right. if you broke yeah. that oath, right? I mean, yeah, it, was, it meant something back then. So, but Stephen's brother, who's high enough in the church, basically convinces all the nobles that, well, the king had no right to make you swear those oaths. So you're not beholden to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we see this for centuries. They're looking for any excuse, well, right? Well, if, 
if the church says we're good, guys, then uh, I guess we're good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's so that's what happens. So Stephen is now king of England, and Matilda is just stuck over in Normandy. And because she's putting out her own fires, it takes four years before she's actually able to muster the troops and get over to England to actually start fighting for her throne. So he, Stephen's already been king four years before she gets over there. And she does set up a pretty good foothold. The fighting is pretty stalemated. It goes it goes back and forth, and they're basically so evenly matched that it, it seriously it's just it's just stalemated the whole time. She sets up a pretty good base in kind of southwestern England and into Wales, and that's she has a pretty stable uh, set up there. And it's of course saying that she is the Queen of England. She just can't get to London to get crowned, right? And her most powerful ally is Robert of Gloucester. Her older brother, uh, you know, son of Henry the First, again the dude who would have been king if he had been legitimate. It would have been no question. This guy is the easy king. Again, Henry even thought about you know naming him his heir in the first place. So he's fighting on Matilda's behalf. She's doing her own thing too. They, basically, they kind of have their own forces. You know, Robert's fighting for her side. She's fighting for her side, and they kind of have each other's backs. And they catch a break in the stalemate in 1141 when. Uh, Stephen had to go deal with another rebellion of some other lord. Again, there's <laughs> it's so complicated, so complicated. So another lord is you know rebelling or whatever uh, against the king that probably even has nothing to do with Matilda because that's what happens. Or maybe he had declared for Matilda because every combination happened. So Robert of Gloucester goes to basically surround Stephen while he's sieging a castle. So Stephen's attacking the castle. Robert comes in from behind and basically pins Stephen and his forces up against the castle with nowhere to go. And so they defeat them, and Stephen is captured. So Matilda's side now has Stephen imprisoned, which gives you a lot of control. (laughs) So she basically now is able to go to England and say, Hey, everybody, I'm now the queen. and Stephen kind of has to agree to everything she says because 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 he's in custody. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yeah. So it's it's all kind of set up to be perfect here until it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. Well. Yeah. Basically, no. Basically, sexism. Right. The whole the whole city of London is just like hell. No, we don't want a queen. The end. Full stop. And they basically just revolt, and it's just like chaos in London, and she has to escape the city from the mob, essentially, who's just not going to let her be crowned. So Matilda is never crowned Queen of England. Right. They they were literally in the streets of London yelling, Trump that bitch, and lock her up, I'm pretty sure, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so she's the head militarily. She has Stephen, but she can't get crowned. And then, in basically a mirror image thing, Robert of Gloucester is later, like, sieging a castle, and Stephen's forces, led by his wife, pin Robert of Gloucester <laughs> against the castle, and he can't escape, and he is captured. So, then it forces a prisoner exchange, because Matilda does seem to be very loyal to her brother, so she do- they do a straight-up one-for-one trade, okay, I'll give you, I'll release Stephen if you give me right. Robert of Gloucester back. And so Stephen is now back, and just to kind of remind everybody who is the actual king, Stephen is recoordinated king of England again, and Matilda really can't do anything about it. So 
again, it's just, it's just kind of a stalemate. Fighting continues back and forth. There's actually an, an epic escape that Matilda has where she is trapped in her castle at Oxford, all surrounded by Stephen's forces. It's a really hard castle to take, though. So Stephen is just kind of in for a protracted siege where, you know, where they're going to starve him out or whatever. Like, we'll just be here all winter and uh, we're, we're going to get this castle eventually. But Matilda has, like, this awesome escape where in the middle of winter... She even, like, wears all white to disguise, like, and they basically escape out past Stephen's troops away from the castle, crossing a, quote, icy river, and I'm a little confused, like, I think I first thought that that meant she, like, basically the river was frozen mm-hmm. and she walked on the ice to get out, but I think it might have been more, no, it's icy cold, and she walked through it, and no one expected her to get out that way because right. you'd be crazy to go through a frozen, an icy cold river in England to escape, and that's, but that's how she got out. That's like and some, so some, kind some of James a, Bond stuff, wearing the all white camo. Absolutely, and, yeah. So that's that's crazy. Yes, that's yes, awesome. yeah. So epic escape there kind of helps uh, prevents uh, Stephen from doing anything there. And basically, then even though officially this war never actually stops on paper, everyone's just kind of losing the energy of it. No one wants to fight over this anymore. It's They're been, just kind of over it. Right. It's It's been years. And then it also doesn't help. So in 1147, Robert of Gloucester dies just peacefully. I don't think he was old, but it wasn't in combat. It wasn't It wasn't a murder or anything. He just, he, right. people, people died. <laughs> he died. Especially back then. <laughs> yeah, especially Sometimes back then. Sometimes you just die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, several of her followers uh, joined the Second Crusade, and so they're heading off to go do that. And so there's just no more energy behind her cause. So on paper, she's still saying, I should be Queen of England. And the fight just basically stopped at this point. And in 1148, Matilda just goes back to Normandy and you know shifts her focus to administrating Normandy and has kind of just stopped fighting. On paper, she still says I should be king or queen of England. Like the fight is still on. No, there's just no battles anymore. Although there'll be a few outbreaks here and there. So as time has passed, I mean, again, so we said that's 1148 when she moves back to Normandy. We're now 13 years after her father had died, and all this happened is Stephen got captured once, and she tried to crown herself and couldn't, and had to release him when her brother got captured. That's all they have to show for it after 13 years. So she's now back in Normandy. But it shifts to her son. So her son, Henry, was two when Henry I died. Well, 13 years have passed. So he's now 15 and ready to get cracking. <laughs> Everything takes time. But after Jeffrey dies in 1151 again the years aren't super important i'm just trying to keep a milestone of things here going so when her husband dies 1151 her son henry is now 18 and basically now takes claim to his father's lands of anjou so he's got kind of this claim working up to himself he's the grandson of henry the first his mom is control in control of normandy he gets anjou from his dad he's 18 ambitious he is every bit matilda's son so Two years later, when he's 20, he heads to England to fight Stephen in his own right. So, like, on paper, he's kind of using his mother's claim. But, again, even if it's just to make his mom queen, he's still then the heir because he's her eldest legitimate son. So, it's kind of as much for him as it is for her. And it's kind of more for him at this point. So, the only one hungry for a fight at this point is the young Henry here. Everyone else is just done fighting over this. And Henry's just ready to go. 
still kind of stalemate though. So him and Steven work out a peace deal pretty quickly. Steven's only son had died. So just to avoid all the fighting, they basically say, hey, Henry, the young Henry, will recognize that Stephen is the rightful king of England. And Stephen will say, Henry is my adopted son and heir and will be the king of England when I die. And everyone's kind of cool with this. We don't really get a big picture of like, there's not like a lot of written about what Matilda felt about this. You would think she's probably kind of grumbly, grumbly about this. But at the same time, she's proud of her son, who's 20 years old now. And I think she's probably just accepted, frankly, that she's been this victim of sexism. It's kind of like, the. I mean, for her, it's probably like just the next best thing. Like, well, I guess if I can't, at least like my lineage will continue to be to continue to rule right she 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 wins kind of ultimately and then it works out great for henry because stephen dies just a year after they make this treaty because people Mm -hmm. because people died back then (laughs) so henry is now crowned henry ii of england at the age of 22 and the rest of it is kind of just the denouement for matilda obviously we've been talking for a very long time and you think we're building up to this being the beginning this is kind of just now the denouement. She stays in Normandy running things on her son's behalf. He quickly ends up in court of charge of this huge territory. So we talked about how splintered everything was. He's now king of England, has Normandy and Anjou from his, you know, his both his parents' side. But then he marries Eleanor of Aquitaine, which is basically all the rest of yeah. southwestern France. So you get to where Henry II like controls more of France right. than the king of France. <laughs> anyway, so Matilda just does just serve as this important advisor not just for her son so much time has passed and she's been this competent administrator in europe for so many years from italy to germany to normandy have never really had control of england but is this advisor for her son she really was kind of the grandmother of england and it was if there was a dispute she would get called in to be the third party arbiter because everyone just so trusted her opinion and her experience in all these matters that she would settle disputes that had nothing to do with her because she was the person you would ask because it just made the most sense to ask her. Huh. Or even with her son and, and all the Thomas Beckett stuff that we yeah. saw in Beckett, when they were on the outs, she would serve as mediator because she would kind of point out where both of them were right and both of them were wrong and just was just super important, this wise matron of Europe is what I, is what I wrote in my, in my notes here. Now, uh, one chronicler at the time, chronicler is kind of a cool term. Like it's kind of like the contemporary historians, like they weren't historians because they were writing about the right. present, but they didn't really have like newspapers at the time. So they call all these like people who just wrote stuff down that was happening, happening at the time, chroniclers. I don't know. I kind of like the term. Anyway, one of, one of them at the time who met her kind of just said she was quote of the stock of tyrants. What does that mean? I think it just kind of means that she, again, I take that to mean she was now, hey, that could be a sexist thing, the fact that this was a woman who insisted on you calling her empress and right. thought she was all that. But we could also say, yeah, dude, she was all that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably just like maybe that, I guess you could argue maybe a sense of entitlement okay. that her word was law and should be law and that she didn't like people questioning her authority. I could say that would probably fit with everything right. we've seen with her personality. But at, at that time, though, it could also just be like, she's a woman and she demands to be taken seriously. Can you believe that? Like, what a dick. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Again, so she, I had to say she fades. She just That's just kind of the role she had for the rest of her life. And then uh, Matilda died on September 10th, 1167 in Rouen, France at the age of 65. And the epithet on her tomb that, again, you can still go visit. 
I think it's still, they meant it as a compliment at the time, <laughs> but it's kind of problematic in the, in the 21st century. So it's uh, great by birth, greater by marriage, greatest in her offspring. <laughs> Here lies <laughs> Matilda, the daughter, wife, and mother of Henry. Because, of course, the three different Henrys we discussed. So, yeah, I'm like, that's super insulting because it's basically saying that she only has worth through right. the men in her life, whether she was the daughter, the wife, or the mother. And I'm like... Dude, she was badass in her own right, uh, and screw you thinking that she needs the men to define her. But yeah, they kind of meant it as a compliment. I was going to say, at the time, though, they were probably like, she was a great woman because of the great men she was associated with. But, she, you know... It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I kind of wrote is that she sh- really should be seen as this early pioneer of women's equality. She wanted to rule. She insisted she had every right to rule. She made a point of distinguishing herself from her husband as someone who could rule mm-hmm. without his influence. She was ambitious and firm. And historians today kind of seem to agree with me that, yeah, that she, we really should see her that way. Yeah, and, and that, that's kind of all I had. I just had a couple other notes here. that, like, So scholars during the Tudor period were kind of confused why she did acquiesce to her son, like we just talked about. But I think it's just a different time period. Obviously, the Tudors did ultimately see the first queens of England. And so I think they were kind of confused. Well, why didn't she just insist I should be queen? I think it was just a different time. It's kind of funny. We talk about how society's views on women's equality obviously changes over time. It's just weird to think about in the 16th century, they were confused about how repressive the 12th (laughs) century was. When, of course, we would think the 16th century was so oppressive to women. But things were always shifting even then. And she did. It does seem like while she was over in England challenging Stephen for those years, she tried to set up an effective court of her own and basically act like she was the queen. Like basically just saying, yeah, I'm the queen. I'm just not in London. I'm over here. I'm fully the queen. That was just kind of her attitude the, the whole time and then kind of ultimately only giving to her son. So I always think back. I really, really love the movie Beckett. And when you watch that movie and you see this, this old woman knitting in the background, just kind of throwing out advice to her son. And she's such an afterthought. Man, just watch that movie with and just think of everything that goes into that woman's life. There's a reason why, again, we talked about we wanted to pull people for this tournament that were talked about briefly and were in these movies we watched. I've always been fascinated by her as this figure who is relegated to a background role in the film. And I'm not saying that wasn't justified in the film, other than she probably would have been in Normandy, not actually in England, just knitting. (laughs) She would have been in Normandy actually in charge. But hey, maybe when she was older, older, she would have come over to deal with her grandsons. Because even like, you know, her grandson, say, Richard the Lionheart was 10 years old when she died and stuff like that. So I don't know what relationship she might have had with them. But yeah, she's a badass. She is an absolute badass. And we probably talked about her for way too long. And I might have to cut some of this stuff out. But yeah, there's a gauntlet thrown down. Let's see if her five times great granddaughter, Isabella, can uh, can hold a candle to yeah. grandma here. Now, I'm looking forward to it, though, because uh, Isabella is very mm-hmm. fascinating in her own right. So let's get to it. What is the story of Isabella of France? Yeah, so we have another female badass, Isabella the She-Wolf. Of France. Which is a great nickname. (laughs) A great nickname, and she earned it, too. So she's born in 1295, which on our timeline here is uh, two years before William Wallace's rebellion. 
So Right, so they never met. Right, they, they never met and all that stuff, but two years before that rebellion is when she's born. Her father is Philip IV of France, which we'll, I'll, I'll talk more about him a little later on. In 1299, at the age of just four years old, she's engaged to Edward II of England. So uh, Edward II is the son of Edward I, Longshanks, who is the, you know, the king in uh, Braveheart. So another just political alliance marriage like we always talk about. Yeah. Right. They're not, they're not married until 1308. So like the joke you made earlier, where it said, well, they waited till she was 12. She was, they literally waited till she was 12 years old to be married. And Edward II was 23. She was 12 at the time. But he is uh, not really uh, interested in her at all. Into girls? Uh, well, so that's the thing. Well, that's he had, true. He did he have had mistresses. He fathered other children um, yeah, okay. out of his marriage. So he, He's probably bisexual, right? Yeah, so, something like that. Um, but he was not interested in Isabella, especially at, at first. Okay. So at his coronation, when he's being coronated he is like i don't give a single shit about isabella like all the ceremonial stuff where he's supposed to be like showing how how much of an alliance they have he doesn't do any of it instead the person who kind of fills that role in all the ceremonial stuff is this guy pierce gaviston so 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 real quick so the longshanks would have set up the marriage right right but then longshanks was dead by the time the marriage came around right let me look longshanks died i'm pretty sure because I was thinking it's almost like this alliance that his father set up that he basically has no reason to honor because he's now king in his own right by the time they get married. Yeah, so he's... But he can't break it because all this stuff... Yeah. So Longshanks dies in 1307. Right. So they were married in January of 1308. He's coronated in, in February. And so, yeah, so, she, you know, she's supposed to be taking a prominent role ceremonially at least. And he just doesn't care she's an afterthought yeah which at the time it's like that's super like disrespectful that's a big deal if you are the king and you are married to presumably the queen and instead you're like i don't you know don't care actually this dude is just gonna do all the i'm gonna have him at this high place of prominence interesting which pierce gavison and edward ii were almost certainly lovers yeah so the his earls, Edward II's earls, are not happy with this relationship that he has with Pierce Gaveston, to say the least. So they put pressure on him to exile Pierce Gaveston, and he does, but then he invites him back, and then he gets pressure put on him again, so he exiles him again, and he comes back. And uh, after doing this a couple times, eventually they kind of they kind of leave to avoid the earls, and... Uh, while they're like leave london yeah and they're, while they're fleeing um at one point ed ed edward the second uh <laughs> he i i have him abbreviated as ed a lot in the notes so i'm i might be i think there. i think that's perfect maybe we should just keep that because <laughs> it keeps him separate from longshanks even more ed and and you know what and, he, and we have edward the third coming up too right right he wasn't a great <laughs> king just come on ed. so so edward the second ed at one point, he leaves Pierce while they are both avoiding the Earls, but he leaves Pierce behind, and the Earls capture and kill Pierce Gavison. And the reason they do that is because they have the support of Thomas Lancaster, who is another... He's not the king, but he's probably the, the next most powerful guy in England this time. Okay. So with the support of Thomas Lancaster, these Earls capture and kill Pierce Gaveston in June of 1312, and Edward II is very sad about that. 
In that same year, <laughs> uh, 1312 in November, Isabella gives birth to Edward III. So this is four years after they're married. So she's 16 by this point, which this is not uncommon in this time to get married like really young at 12, but not have kids or, or consummate the relationship until years later. Right, right. For multiple reasons. One, it was it was seen as, you know, you respect their age until they're until they're 16 and you're 27 at this point, which is still gross. But that at the time would have been seen as, oh, he's being respectful of her age. But also because, you know, obviously, if you are 13 years old and having a kid, that's like super dangerous, especially in 1312. Right, right. Yeah, not good. So in 1312, she has Edward the third. So now Edward the second kind of has his heir. So his reign is now kind of uh, safe and secure. In 1314, Isabella goes on a trip to Gascony, which Gascony is a part of France, just north of Spain, right on the, the Atlantic coast of France to the south. Okay. So she goes on this trip to Gascony, which is a region of France that is, uh, it's controlled by the king of France, but the for some reason, uh, <laughs> the king of England or whoever the yeah the king of England is supposed to go there anytime there's a new king and pay tribute for Gascony. Oh, just a ceremonial thing. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, which that's not really important on this trip, but it will be later. Uh, but anyway, so she's on this trip to Gascony, and while she's there, and this is just kind of a side interesting this doesn't really have any far-reaching consequences but it's kind of a side interesting story about just a cool thing that happened not cool but an interesting thing that happened so while she's there uh it's discovered that her sisters-in-law were all having affairs with knights and that's bad because they were all married to french princes and french princes are higher in the pecking order than french knights so the knights were all executed very painfully, very badly, and the sisters all had their heads shaved and they were all imprisoned for having these affairs. These would, these would be the wives of her brothers? Yes, because this isn't like a historically proven thing, but it is kind of a weird coincidence that she shows up and all of a sudden it's discovered that these sisters-in-law are having these affairs. I don't think that there's any historical evidence to suggest that she was responsible for outing them. Oh, right. But it's, I don't know, it's just kind of like... But it happens at the same time, right? Right, if you have this kind of conspiracy theory mind, she she shows up to Gascony and then... Boom, all of the her sisters-in-law's affairs all become public. Does that fit with her personality that she would have seen that as super offensive herself? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And who knows what the motivations could have been for outing them too, if she did do that. Like Right, that's basically your theory. Yeah. It could have been just, oh God, my sisters-in-law are so insufferable. Like they won't ever just shut up. I can't stand them. I know that they're all right, having affairs right. though, so I'm gonna make sure that they get caught. <laughs> um anyway. So this was in 1314. 1314, rough year for Isabella, uh, because in the same year that she uh, is in Gascony when her sisters-in-law are all imprisoned, this is also when the Battle of Bannockburn takes place in Scotland, uh-huh. which is uh, depicted in Braveheart 
and Outlaw King. It's a big defeat for the English in Scotland. Right. So Edward II uh, is obviously very uh, upset about that. And uh, this is also 1314, the year that her father dies. And the reason that I waited to talk about her father until now is because this is another not really conspiracy theory thing, but so her father is Philip the Fourth, who is also known as Philip the Fair. And not fair as in like just and right and good and nice. Means like pretty, right? Right. Fair as in, yeah, he's a he's a good looking guy. He's a he's a pretty guy. Because he's actually like not a nice king at all. He had this big thing where he basically like ended the Knights Templar, which was this order of knights that was hundreds of years old involved with the crusades and stuff right right they were involved in the crusades and and a lot of other stuff too that had to do with like finance and business and banking and stuff and so he the king philip the fourth was really in debt to the knights templar and as the crusades started to wind down there was a sort of distrust that started to grow in the general uh european population about the knights templar because they had all these like secret membership rituals and stuff so he really kind of used that to push this narrative that the secret rituals included desecrating the cross and worshiping idols and having set men having sex with men so by pushing those and also getting the church involved getting the catholic church involved he really turned public sentiment and religious sentiment against the knights templar and arrested a bunch of them and this is actually <laughs> a side note to this side note, uh, the origin or a possible origin of why we think Friday the 13th is like supernatural and bad luck is because the big day where all of these arrests of the Knights Templars took place was Friday the 13th of October 1307. I think I'd heard the Knights Templar connection before. I didn't know the details, but I remember hearing Knights Templar being the reason for Friday the 13th being a thing. Right. So he arrests all these guys, including the Grand Master of the Knights Templar at the time, who was the last Grand Master of the Knights Templar, Jacques de Molay. And he was a uh, Grand Master, he was a Crusader, and either on the 11th or the 18th of March, not really clear, of 1314, Philip IV has Jacques de Molay burned at the stake. And while he's burned at the stake, he declares, and it's in French, but the translation is, God knows who is wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death because he was also being burned with uh, another knight. And so basically curses, quote, those responsible for his death. And Pope Clement died only a month after that. And King Philip died in a hunting accident, another hunting accident, died in a hunting accident before the (laughs) end of the year. Wow. So this is a march within nine months, both the Pope and the King of France, the two people responsible for Jacques de Molay being burned at the stake, were dead. And Jacques de Molay, while he was being burned, said, soon the people responsible will also be dead. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So that's kind of cool. Anyway, so uh, (laughs) Philip IV's crown, after he died, passed to Louis X, who kind of died shortly thereafter, didn't have heirs, and then to his next son, Philip V, who was also known as Philip the Tall. Uh, there was also a brief reign of King John I of France um, at that time, but that's kind of a retcon of the royal line because he was like a baby who was not ever technically the, or he wasn't the king at the time, but later 
the historians went back and said, oh, actually, there was this baby who was, I think, the son of Louis X, and he was only alive for a few days, but he should have been the king for those few days. Oh, huh. And now, if you go back and look at the royal line, he is included. Oh, crazy. And he's, uh, he's interesting because it shows that he is, like, the only ruler to rule for his entire life because he was technically the king or should have been the king from at the time birth. of his birth to the time of his death. Um, and he's also, yeah, the only king to have been king from the moment of his birth. Huh. So, anyways. Part of the reason they probably wanted to go retcon that then, huh? Yeah, yeah. Even if he was, it wouldn't have affected anything because he, you know, the John the First was only alive for I think a couple weeks. Um, at which point, the crown would have passed to Philip the Fifth anyway. So it really doesn't matter. But anyway, so all of that to say, Philip the Fourth is dead. Philip the Fifth, Philip the Tall, is now the king. And because there is a new king of France, that means that Edward the Second needs to go pay homage to the new king for that uh, region of Gascony that we talked about earlier. So at this time, back in England, Edward II starts his second relationship with another guy that no one is going to be happy about. And it's it's it is a little bit because it's like a rumored homosexual relationship that people have issue with it. But it's also just because Hugh Dispenser just kind of sucked and Edward II sucked. And so it was just like just adding fuel to the fire, basically. Right. The dude didn't do himself any favors. Right, exactly. It's not like, oh, well, you know, they only didn't like him because he was homosexual. It's like, no, they he sucked anyway. That was just an extra reason. They they didn't like him, and he was also homosexual. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they start a relationship, and in the meantime, Philip V, who is Philip the Tall, also dies. So, Which is Isabella's brother. Isabella's brother dies, and so her next brother, Charles IV, then becomes king. So Edward II still has to go pay homage to for Gascony to the to King Charles, but he doesn't really want to. He kind of hesitates, and so Charles then sends troops to Gascony, basically saying, "Well, if you're not going to pay homage to me for this, we'll just take Gascony for Gascony. <laughs> then I'm just going to exert my control over it." And so because of that, Hugh Dispenser says, "Well, the French are the enemies of England now." And that includes you, Isabella, because you're French. And so he takes the land that she controlled. He uh, takes all of her servants and houseworkers, her whole household. And he also takes custody of all of her children, except for Edward III, because he was kind of grown up at this time and had his own household. But basically everything that she owns, including her house and her children, he takes all of it and says, well, I'm confiscating all this for England because you are an enemy of the state because you're French. And his authority is the king likes me. Right, yeah. (laughs) Isabella is pissed. She is not happy at all. (laughs) But she doesn't doesn't do anything right away. And this is kind of goes to show... Why why she's so cool? Yeah. Yeah, she is very politically and strategically minded. And she knows exactly how to handle these situations. And it's like, it's the opposite with Edward II. Edward II is a complete idiot when it comes to stuff like this. Because uh, after this happens, Edward II is put in kind of a pickle because he can't go pay tribute to Charles IV for Gascony anymore. Because if he leaves, uh, he's going to have to leave. Or if he leaves and leaves Hugh Dispenser behind, Hugh Dispenser is going to be killed. Right. Because the public doesn't like him at all. Right. But if he takes Hugh Dispenser with him to Gascony, the French will probably kill him because of all the stuff that he just did to Isabella. <laughs> so he's like, I don't know what to do. I can't. 
I can't leave with Hugh Dispenser. I can't leave without him. So because he doesn't really have any other option, even though it's like he probably knew or should have known that this was going to turn out badly for him. But he's like, well, I don't really have any other option. So Isabella, why don't you go to Gascony? You go to France, talk to your brother, negotiate with him. Even though he knows that she is pissed off at Hugh Dispenser because of all the, the horrible shit that he just did to her. He's like, well, I don't, I don't have, I can't do anything else. So he sends Isabella to France and she goes and she's like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> like, I'm just going to hang out in France now. So he can't do it. Edward II can't do anything about it because he's still stuck because of Hugh Dispenser. So Charles IV, probably with, you know, input from Isabella says, well, hey, you know, why don't you just send your son? Send Edward III over here to France. He can pay tribute for Gascony. We'll call it good. Go ahead and send your son over here. How old would he be at the time? You said he had his own household, but does, does that mean he's like full grown or more? So just that he's he was like born in 1312 and this. Okay, so this is 1325. So he is 13 years old. Oh, no, he'd be he'd be 12. He would not have been 13 yet. Okay. Anyways, so he's 12 years old. Uh, so 12 year old Edward III ends up getting sent to France by his father because, again, he has no other choice. He can't, he can't leave. Okay, so he sends Prince Edward to France in, in his stead. And this is kind of where Isabella is like, she's like, okay, now I've got all of the... Now I got the chess pieces. Now I've got all the chess pieces in the right place because I am, I am in France, away from you, Edward II, and my brother's the king of France. Yeah. And I have the heir to England. <laughs> right. I have the heir. And this is where, so she waits until this time. Now that she has all the power dynamic in her favor, this is when she basically makes a declaration to the French court of, I'm not going back to England until Hugh Dispenser leaves. And she makes this statement about um, a marriage is between a man and a woman. And right now there's someone else in our marriage. Wow. In the 14th century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and she could do this because she's separated by, you know, a bunch of miles and she has a ton of support and uh, everyone in England hates Hugh Dispenser, hates Edward II. And so this is when she can start to get bold. The wolf compounds. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's also around this time that she meets Roger Mortimer, who's very famously her lover. They start the relationship. Roger had no love for Edward II. He was imprisoned um, in the Tower of London during a conflict where Edward II imprisoned one of the people who are responsible for basically protecting England from the Welsh at this time. Uh Uh-huh. And so it's like kind of in the king's best interest to not piss them off, but he does. And it was during this conflict that Roger Mortimer was captured imprisoned in the Tower of London, escaped the Tower of London and got to France. And this was all before Isabella got there. So he was already there when she got there. Right. When Isabella gets to France, he's there and they meet and start a relationship. And this is also uh, something interesting. So Isabella, we talked about in Braveheart, Roger Mortimer actually has a cameo in A Knight's Tale. Oh, does he? He wouldn't have been in any of those tournaments or anything. Like it's, it's not historically accurate or whatever, but... In the first tournament that William Thatcher jousts in, the first time that he breaks a lance, it's on 
Roger Mortimer. The timeline's probably a hair off. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The timeline is off, and also, like, Roger Mortimer, who basically was the lover of the regent to the king of England, would not have been jousting in a in a tournament. Right, well, the, we see... Because the, the, the character that shows up in The Knight's Tale is the Black Prince, which would have been Isabella's right. grandson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it, it, he, yeah, not uh, okay. He was so it doesn't not, quite tie up right, but they pulled the name on purpose, right. probably. Yeah, but that's the, cool. But there is a character, Roger Mortimer, in a Knight's Tale. It is kind of worth noting. It seems like if you think of knights and chivalry and tournaments and princesses, the 1300s is kind of the peak of that, it seems like. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so while Isabella is in France, um, she gains a bunch of soldiers through a marriage alliance with her son. So she marries her son. She marries Edward III to... Philippa of Henault? Yes. Philippa of he- of Henault. Or H- Henault. I don't know how you say it. I'm not French. I don't speak French. Rich, you speak French. How do you say that? Je parle très peu. Quite. So, <laughs> so she marries her son off gets a bunch of soldiers. She also gets a bunch of mercenaries in her ranks. And with the support of her new army and with her teenage son, she goes back to England. She knows that she has the support um, of France because her brother is the king of France. And also she knows that uh, the English commoners, the English people are probably not going to be too unhappy that someone is going to depose Edward II, because no one likes him. And they always seem to be more okay with that if you can make a good case for the next person right. and you have his literal son. Well, yes. heck, yeah, well, let's go with that because it can't right. be any worse than this guy. Exactly. So she has the legitimate heir and no one likes Edward II, so they're saying, hell yeah, we're behind you, 100%. Come on in. So Edward II and Hugh Dispenser are like, oh, shit, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so they they flee, but they are both eventually caught, and Isabella gets to exact her revenge on Hugh Dispenser, and he is executed in the most gruesome, most horrific way of execution that they had at the time. Like, there's a famous painting, like a mural uh, manuscript painting of Hugh Dispenser being executed. And it's funny, I've actually seen it, like, use an example of, like, if you're watching, like, a historical documentary or something, they'll talk about someone from around that time period being executed. Sometimes they'll put that picture on, because it's not, like, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know, oh, that's a painting of Hugh Dispenser being executed, but they'll just oh, put it up right. as the example. So if you've watched documentaries or something and seen this painting, you might you might recognize it. But yeah, basically, uh, his genitals were cut off. He was had his entrails pulled out. He was hung, beheaded, and then uh, quartered. So they cut his arms and his legs off. Uh, just an absolutely horrible way to go. And uh, yeah, but he kind of he kind of earned it because of you all. You play with the... fire. You play exactly, with fire. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So he's executed. Edward II is taken into custody. He's not executed. There are a few people who kind It's of, a harder threshold to execute the king. It, it, it's, right. It's, it's considered right. poor form. Yeah. Exactly. And that's um, not to jump ahead, but in the whole Queen Elizabeth I 
Mary Queen of Scots thing, that was like a kind of a big deal that they were executing someone who was the rightful queen. Basically, there if you're if you're a queen, if you're royalty at all, but especially if you're a king or a queen, you're kind of seen as above the law. Right. You were put there by God, so how dare anyone else uh right. even if they kick you from power, they can't kill you. Right. So Edward II is taken into custody. Um, there are uh, a few attempts to break him out of custody from his few supporters. Um, none of them are successful. And after the third attempt, he he just kind of died. Maybe murdered. Honestly, probably murdered. <laughs> but there there are a lot of like rumors from the time were like, oh, he was like penetrated anally with like a hot poker or something like just like really gruesome stuff. But a lot of that stuff probably didn't happen. It was just kind of tall tales that people would tell say at the time that like, oh, this death seems as this is what would be fitting for him because of how horrible he was. Isabella probably didn't have a hand in his death. There's some evidence to show that she didn't really know what was going on. If he was murdered, it was likely strangulation or, you know, suffocation, something that wouldn't really leave a mark. But anyway, he died. He is dead buried except for his heart is actually taken out of his body and put in this little like metal canister vase thing and given to isabella (laughs) and that'll come up later but so she has his heart which is romantic but the opposite at the same time (laughs) because they really didn't get along (laughs) yeah yeah so at this point edward iii is officially king but not he's still a teenager, so the real power behind the throne is still Isabella and Roger Mortimer. Oh, right. Okay. And to the point where in 1328, when peace with Scotland is officialized, the, the treaty is in Edward's name, but he didn't really have anything to do with it. That was like all Isabella and Roger Mortimer. He actually wasn't thrilled about having peace with Scotland. Edward III wasn't. So... Uh, that's really kind of the last straw because he Edward III is kind of getting fed up with Isabella and Roger Mortimer. Okay. And so once the Black Prince is born, so Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, who had he lived longer than his father, would have been Edward IV, King of England. Right. Um, but Edward, the Black Prince is born. So that's when Edward III says, all right, I got my heir. Now I'm good to make my move get mom and her boyfriend out of here. So Edward III and some of his bros sneak into Nottingham Castle and capture Roger Mortimer and Isabella. So he captures mom and mom's boyfriend. Mortimer is executed. Um, He's hung, so not really the worst way to go. But, you know, Edward III basically didn't didn't have a choice had to kill him but kind of because he knew that his mom was you know really loved this guy and cared about him was like all right well i'm not gonna do what i what you did to hugh dispenser to this guy but he's he can't stay alive so he hangs roger mortimer and basically makes roger mortimer the scapegoat for everything for everything okay Um, so kind of exonerates his mom in the public right isabella is spared any official blame um, in the eyes of the public, Roger Mortimer was the evil man who got his hooks into Isabella. And, and um, so Isabella is now widowed. And well, I mean, yeah, they weren't married, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Well. Well, sorry. She was widowed anyway. She's still widowed because Edward II's yeah, dead. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but now she's, she's, uh, she's flying solo. So yeah. she... 
in the later part of her life, she joined the Franciscan order for a little bit, but like kind of was like a non-white because she didn't want to give up any of her like possessions or riches or anything. She uh, was really involved uh, with her grandkids. So she actually had a pretty solid, meaningful relationship with the Black Prince later on in, uh-huh. in her life. And then when she died in 1358, she was buried with Edward II's heart. So that heart that she had in that metal canister that was that she kept, she had it buried with her. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And then she actually left most of her possessions to the Black Prince. So that was like he was kind of her favorite of the of the grandchildren. Um, and she did spend time at court, too, later on in her life. She, I think she spent some time briefly under house arrest after the whole Roger Mortimer execution thing. But yeah, super interesting life. She lived through, you know, the Scottish War of Independence, the Black Death, the Hundred Years War. Super influential. And reportedly every bit as like beautiful and as intelligent as we see in the movie Braveheart, right? It's like it gets all the facts wrong, but the casting and the performance is kind of spot on to who she was. Right. Yeah. Super cunning, super smart, you know, an absolute master at politics and strategy even more so than her king of a husband, which Edward II was horrible at those things. But like, I think that even if Edward II was even more politically savvy than he was, I still don't think he would have been a match for Isabella. She was just super sharp. Yeah, just an an absolutely fascinating female badass. I I don't want to pick. (laughs) Like, these two are so good. They unite forces, because here's what they would do in real life. They would unite forces, tell us our tournament was dumb, and advance to the next round together. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they are both too awesome. I, we're we're going to have to hash this out a little bit, because I legit don't know which know. way to vote. And I, it's, it's, I don't really have a preference. It's, it's, it's so uncanny, the way that we have, like, you know, descended from royalty, never really ruled themselves, but like had their kids that they then use their super politically and strategically savvy minds to make sure that they set their kids up so that their family would then be the ruling family of England. And it's it's like Isabella is a direct descendant of Matilda. Yeah, yeah. Uh which isn't Edward II also a direct descendant of Matilda? Well, yeah. <laughs> But again, it's, I mean, they're basically... But it's just, it's just, that's, that's cool. They're, that fourth, they're, like, they're like fourth cousins. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's like, it, this is like twice in the same family tree in less than, oh, couple hundred years, 200 yeah. years. It's like, two, it's you know, it's that whole thing where history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, this yeah. Is, this is a really good example of that. Okay, I think I've figured, so here's, here's what I'll say. <sighs> If we have to choose, and you might have a different side, and then we can vote, or or you'll convince me, or whatever. But so on the one hand, I think Isabella's chess move and all that stuff we talked about is kind of more badass. But I feel like the whole Empress thing and everything Matilda did in Europe before ever going back then to England and doing that stuff, I feel like there's just more happening. It's almost like Matilda had this whole other interesting life, and then did the parallel Isabella thing. So, I love them both. I'm probably going to... I got to go 51-49 on the coin toss, and I I would vote for Matilda. So, I... Here's 
here's my thing. But you can convince me. I'm open to being convinced. Here's, here's, <laughs> here's my thinking. So I think that Isabella was better and kind of more successful at exerting her will. Whereas Matilda was kind of maybe more at the mercy of other but, things. But at yeah. the, in the end, Matilda was more successful because she's like... I mean, they both end up having sons who are kings of England. She never ends up in prison. Well, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's not like she ends up in prison and has her boyfriend caught and executed and all that. But at the same time, that almost makes it develop more No, right, that's what I'm saying, because it's, it's about interesting. It's... I think we're both narrowly leading Matilda, and we both don't want to get rid of Isabella. Is that about where we're at? Kind of. And, and yeah. And because... so. I think Matilda does get the edge because she is pressing her own claim first and then presses her son's claim as kind of the next best thing. Whereas Isabella is never really saying like, I want to be queen of France or queen of England. The the ambition is less. Yeah. Yeah. But only just barely. And it's like, she didn't didn't have the claim and she never tried to get the French throne or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Which Matilda would have. No one, no one was really trying to Matilda has the, also the added barrier of she's doing everything while people are actively trying to fight a war against her and kill her. Whereas Isabella doesn't really... It's more the politics. It's more the right. politics. Well, right, and yeah. no one's trying to get to oust Isabella because she doesn't have a claim to the throne, so it almost is... Okay. She has... Yeah. Lo- it's a it's a lower barrier to entry for her. Okay, now here, here's a thought. Help, help, I'm going to kind of... Help me workshop this. So okay. we talked about Matilda having the hand of St. James. Can she perhaps... And maybe they all do this in, in every every winter as we advance through. They gain a relic from those they vanquish. So Matilda first took out Joan of Arc, so she gets like Joan of Arc's sword and she advances to the next round. And then from her, you know, five times great granddaughter Isabella, who she, she gets vanquishes, Edward heart. she takes Edward the Second's heart. <laughs> and now she goes into the Elite Eight, like wielding more weapons. Like we're doing like a Hunger Games style. I don't know. I just kind of had that thought as we were talking that like you advance because I want I, it's because I don't want to completely get rid of Isabella. So I want to imbue Matilda with the power of Isabella as she advances through the tournament. Right. And we can do the same thing like like Cleopatra gets to ride on a war elephant now because she defeated the Trung sisters. Or like yes. Queen, Queen Elizabeth gets Wyatt Earp's revolvers. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like this. I kind of like this. Hey, anyone, any uh, listeners who are good at at art, uh, <laughs> Robbie, <laughs> send us a picture of Queen Elizabeth <laughs> shooting off Wyatt Earp's revolvers. That sounds badass. <laughs> yeah, we're we're onto something here. So <laughs> it was a narrow victory. Isabella is, I think, decidedly the most interesting character in the movie Braveheart and oh for sure is a fascinating figure but old Maud wins this round and empress matilda advances to the elite eight where again as we mentioned in cleopatra she will not be matched up against the other medieval on your ass bracket with uh genghis khan versus henry the seventh she will actually get rematched up against a a seed from the enlightened industrialists but we kind of don't know yet because it depends on which which seeds all kind of win here Although, I, so I, I will say this though, even though Isabella did not make it through this round, doing the research for her and 
talking about her on this episode solidifies it, it just makes me feel way better at knowing that I made the right decision to vote for oh. her with my points over Vlad the Impaler. She is so cool. Okay, you're right, because if this is all of a sudden Empress Matilda versus Dracula, I'm probably still voting Matilda, and so, yeah, okay, right. okay. yeah, but we definitely made the right choice in advancing Isabella to the second, to the, to this round, for um, sure. Of course, man, to use our little, uh, our little gimmick here, though, too, so it's almost like Isabella beat Dracula, so she's coming in with stakes to go up against Matilda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I mean, I don't, I don't really know how to actually work that in, other than just it's, it, it makes the visuals fun as we kind of advance through here, right? And you, yeah. you take something from those you vanquish. So then, at the end, whoever wins is going to have all of it. Oh, right there, you go. Good call. <laughs> it's like all the relics of the tournament. I like this. Okay, uh, if only we were artists. So, thanks for listening. That was uh, way longer than intended. And next week, another very interesting matchup when we look at. Napoleon Bonaparte versus Ivan the Terrible. Can't wait. <laughs>